Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8? And let me just say one more time for those new folks here this morning, we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And uh, we just recently started chapter 8, which does begin a new section in Matthew's Gospel. The theme of Matthew's Gospel is to present Jesus as the Messiah and King of Israel. And so in his endeavor to do that, in the first four chapters, we were introduced to the person of the king. In chapters 5 to 7, the principles of the king, which we called the Sermon on the Mount. And now we are being introduced to the power of the king in chapters 8 and 9. And to do that, Matthew records ten miracles for us in these two chapters, which really demonstrate Jesus' power and authority over disease, demons, over nature, and over death itself. Now, so far we have looked at Jesus uh, cleansing a leper in verses 1 through 4. We have also seen last week how he healed a centurion servant in verses 5 through 13. And now we see Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. Interesting. Verses 14 and 15. So we read in verse 14. Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and served them. And so after they had been to the synagogue and you picked it up in Luke's gospel, they had been to the synagogue after the synagogue service in Capernaum. They uh, went to Peter's house and there uh, Jesus saw uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law uh, lying in a bed sick with a fever. Now, let me just say this is a little side note. I was raised in a Roman Catholic church and uh, Roman Catholicism teaches that priests are supposed to be celibate and unmarried. Uh, but here, the one they claim is the greatest pope and the first pope of all, Peter, he was obviously married, so that presents somewhat of a problem. Um, can't get around it. Paul the Apostle said uh, in defending his right to be to live off the gospel, he says, look, don't Barnabas and I have a right to be supported by the gospel? And don't we have the right to take along a wife like Peter and the other apostles? Okay, so Peter was married, right? Um, but she was sick, his mother-in-law. And uh, so Jesus touched her hand and the fever left her. Now, you read that and go, okay, great. So he healed his mother-in-law of a fever. Wonderful. Let's move on. Well, <laughs> all right. You know, um, and we eventually will move on. Uh, but not so fast, all right? Uh, first of all, you have to understand the cultural background a little bit. Uh, women were not really held in high esteem in Israel in those days. In fact, the first thing that many, if you can believe this, uh, the first thing that many Jewish men did every morning was to pray this prayer. Lord, I thank you that I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. All right? Isn't it interesting, of all the miracles Matthew could have chosen to talk about the power and authority of the king, and he had many he could have chosen, that he didn't just pick, uh, throw this in there and that one. No, no, he was being led by the Holy Spirit to choose certain miracles to show certain things to us. And interestingly, the first three miracles he chose, all right, were miracles that showed how Jesus loved and had compassion for the outcast. I mean, the first miracle was he healed a leper. Lepers were socially ostracized in those days. They couldn't even live in town. They had to live outside the walls of the city in, by themselves or in colonies. And Jesus not only heals a leper, he touches the guy. 
to show how much God loved him. The next was a centurion slave boy. I mean, this, this centurion had a slave who was a young guy, probably a boy. And Gentiles were outcasts. Uh, slaves were outcasts in Israel. And yet Jesus speaks the word and heals this man's young, insignificant, so to speak, slave in his own house. And now the third miracle that Matthew chooses to showcase Jesus' power. He shows mercy and compassion to a woman. What is Jesus doing? He's breaking all social barriers, isn't he? Don't you love our Lord? He was not politically correct. All right? He broke all social barriers and was sending a very powerful message to the male-dominated Jewish culture of his day. And the message was this. God is no respecter of persons. You know, you Jews, you guys, especially the upper echelon, and and I'm talking not just the political, but the religious leaders like the scribes and Pharisees, they walked around thinking who they were, you know? They walked around thinking they were so above everybody else, you know? They were the guys, the Pharisees, who would walk through town with their robes pulled tight to their bodies, lest the wind should cause their robe to flap up and brush uh, against some sinner, and they'd be defiled. And here's Jesus touching sinners and touching lepers and reaching out to the outcast because he wanted people to know, look, God loves you. You could be the lowliest slave or the highest sovereign. And you know what? God is no respecter of persons. He loves everybody the same and he is equally concerned about all people. In fact, if you read the Gospels, it seems like Jesus went out of his way purposely to minister to the lowliest in society. Why? Because these were the folks who were for the most part the most humble and open to his message. In other words, more open to receiving him as their Savior and Lord. Look, you have to understand, the folks that were the the biggest outcasts, like the, the prostitutes, tax collectors, and even lepers, they were taught by, if you can believe this, by the Jewish leadership, the, the rabbis and scribes and Pharisees, you know what, those folks would never get into heaven. They were so defiled. And so you know, did the people, people begin to pick up it and go, well, you know what, if God doesn't want anything to do with me, then forget God. I don't want anything to do with him either. And here comes Jesus who claimed to be God in human form. And he's saying, no, 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 don't listen to these men. You have heard it said of old by these men, this and that, I say to you. You come to me. God loves you. That's why I'm here. I haven't come to call the righteous to salvation. I've come to call what? The sinners. And nobody is beyond the touch of God. Nobody is so sinful that God's grace can't forgive them. And so these folks that had been given no hope by their Jewish leaders, religious leaders, now the God of glory was coming to them, reaching out to them, seeking them out and saying, look, I love you guys. God loves you and wants to invite you to be members of his kingdom. And what you need to do is believe in his son by faith, and he will adopt you into his family. What a message of hope that was. And that's why he drew tax collectors and sinners and all the outcasts of society, because he treated them with love and compassion and gave them hope that God did love them and God wanted to invite them to be his children. And so after Jesus touched Peter's mother-in-law and she was healed, it says here that she arose and what? Served them. You know what? You can always tell a person who's been touched by Jesus because that person will begin to serve others. Look, when you invite Jesus Christ into your heart, who is the quintessential servant of humanity, when Jesus comes to live in your heart, he begins to live his life through us, doesn't he? And that, one of the things that's manifested right away is you have a heart now to begin to reach out and minister to others. In fact, you begin to say to yourself, who can I serve? Okay, Who can I help? Because Jesus Christ is inside. 
And the Holy Spirit working is working in us, uh, the, the character of Christ, making us more and more like Jesus. And so you can always tell a person who's been touched by the Lord because they really want to reach out and touch others. Now, you read this again and go, well, it was a kind of a minor miracle, all right? But it really wasn't. It had a major impact on that city, Capernaum. Because it says, after the sun went down, in other words, after the Sabbath was over, word had gotten out that Jesus Christ was in town and he had touched Peter's mother-in-law and had healed her of a pretty severe fever. Well, after the sun went down and the Sabbath was over, it says almost the whole city gathered at Peter's door looking for Jesus to touch their lives in some way and either heal them from sicknesses, cast out demons, or in some way just minister to them. And I'll tell you what, guys, blessing in the home, and it's got to start there. If our families are being lived in hypocrisy and we really aren't letting Jesus touch us, and I mean us first and foremost, our hearts, well, we're not letting him touch us and put his finger on areas that he wants to clean up, that he wants us to deal with. If we're just coming to church and putting on a facade, it's been said the church parking lot has helped more couples in marriage than any counseling program ever has. Because couples could be fighting all the way to church. They hit the church parking lot and suddenly their marriages are transformed. They get out of that car looking like the best Christian family on the face of the earth. But you know what? God knows the heart. God knows what's going on. It's a show. And the Lord looks past the outward. He sees the heart. But if our hearts and our families and all are really transformed, it can't help but spill over into the community around us. And it did here. I mean, the touch of Jesus in one woman's life led to miracles in the lives of so many. And that's how the Lord always works. The Lord always touches lives one at a time. And after he's touched the life, he then uses that life to touch others. And it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? As I've said before, let me say it again. Some people think that evangelism is all about arguing doctrine with people. That's not evangelism. That's pride. Let me show you how much I know. That's pride. True evangelism is really just letting the Lord touch others through you the way he has touched you. Look, people can argue with our doctrine, but they can't argue with a changed life. And that's why Jesus said, go out there and let your light shine. Show people what God has done for you. Okay? Remember what happened? The man was um, uh, one of the guys that was all filled with demons. We'll read about him next time. And um, Jesus cast out the demons. And the guy wanted to follow him. And what did Jesus say? You go back to your family. You go back to your town and show them what great things God has done for you. That's the best evangelism tool I know. A changed life. Well, as I said, this created quite a stir in town and generated a pretty good crowd. And so in verse 16 we read, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Now, once again, Matthew's book has been called by some the gospel of the king because Matthew wrote it primarily to a Jewish audience because he wanted to present to Israel her long-awaited Messiah and king. But here's what Matthew knew. Matthew was a Levite. And Matthew knew, if I'm going to present Jesus as the Messiah and King of Israel, I have to prove that he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies that pointed to the Messiah. I mean, Matthew knew that. No Jew is going to accept anybody as their Messiah who didn't fulfill the prophecies. 
that were spoken of by the prophets about the coming Messiah and what he would be, what he would do once he came. And so that's why Matthew in his gospel quotes 16 messianic prophecies and identifies each of them with Jesus by saying these words. And you'll see it throughout Matthew's gospel, these very words. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying. Proving that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies which were spoken by the Old Testament prophets concerning the Messiah's coming. Look, one of the main things the Jewish people were told to look for that would testify to the reality of whether or not a man was in fact the real Messiah. Because there were always false messiahs coming. Okay, Israel dealt with them throughout their history. There were always guys claiming to be the Messiah before and even after Jesus. In fact, Jesus said one of the signs of the end times would be that many false prophets and false messiahs would arise, right? So they're still coming down the pike. And of course, God knew that. God knew that he has one true messiah, but the devil was going to try to muddy the waters, cloud the issue by throwing all kinds of false messiahs at Israel. And God, understanding that, said, look, I'm going to give you the things to look for to prove to you who is the true messiah. And one of the things that God pointed to was that the true Messiah, when he came, would heal the sick and the infirmed. Now, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read you one prophecy out of Isaiah. Where it says, When Messiah comes, he shall open the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will sing. These are all the signs or the evidences that a man who comes claiming to be the Messiah of Israel is truly the Messiah. And so it says in verse 16, once again, in Matthew 8, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, verse 17, key verse, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. In verse 17, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 4. Now listen to me. I want to just camp here for the remainder of our time, really on uh, Matthew uh, verse 17 of chapter 8. But uh, I do that because, or I want to do that because uh, this is a verse that is used more than any other by the so-called faith healers to justify their ministries. And I want to just look at this because there's so much confusion on this topic. Let me try to bring some clarity to this issue. And let me do that by first saying this as we get a kind of a running start at this topic. All sickness can be traced back to Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, before the fall of man, there was no sickness and no death on the earth. All of these things, sickness and death, entered the world at the time of the fall through man's sin. Sin set in motion, among other things, what the scientists call the law of entropy. The laws of entropy, and in particular, the second law of thermodynamics. What does that mean? It means that things are moving from order to disorder, from integration to disintegration. When you're talking about inanimate objects, you know, things are rusting and rotting and decaying. When you're talking about animate objects like human beings, well, we are going from life to death, right? No sooner are we born than we begin to, we grow up, but we're actually growing old. And eventually that growing old becomes so pronounced it eventually kills us. Because the body can no longer heal itself. God alluded to this law in Genesis chapter 2. When he said to Adam and Eve, look, there's one tree in the midst of the garden that you cannot eat. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
He said, you shall not eat from it, for in the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die, right? Well, the Hebrew was actually translated, and dying, you will surely die. In other words, in the day that you eat from the fruit of that tree, you will set in motion the process of death. Scientifically, the scientists would say that's where the they're Christian scientists who are Christians, they will say that's where the entropy laws got their start. That's where the second law of thermodynamics kicked in, where things began to move from order to disorder, from life to death, and so on. But let me just say this to you. It is wrong to look at this world and blame God for all the horrible diseases that we see. All of these are the consequences of man's sin, either directly, a lot of things we do, we bring the consequence of sin upon our lives by directly sinning. I mean, AIDS today is a horrible disease that has affected many people because they have directly involved themselves in all kinds of immoral activities. But what about people who were given transfusions, then caught HIV, and then finally AIDS because of the tainted blood of somebody else? They're suffering the indirect consequences of somebody's sin. Children that are born with birth defects or genetic defects, they were not inflicted with those things because of anything they had done wrong. They're just born into a world tainted by sin, corrupted by sin. Things we're all dealing with in some level. Now, someday God has promised to give us new bodies and a new world to live in. And at that time, we will no longer know sickness, pain, or death. But until that time, we have to live with the consequences of sin. And a big part of that is sickness. Now, listen. God, in his mercy, will often give a person a healing from their physical sickness or infirmities. That's true. And I believe that all healing comes from God, not just the supernatural variety, okay? All healing comes from God. You know, whether you talk about natural means, as God has designed the body to heal itself, or if you go to a doctor or a hospital and you are given treatment or medications, that ultimately the body then is healed. It's ultimately God, though, who brings the healing. Look, in Psalm 103, verses 2 and 3, we read these words. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquities, listen, who heals all your diseases. I believe God is the ultimate healer of all disease. And I thank God for doctors, good doctors. But they can only do so much. You realize that doctors really can't heal anybody. All they can do is provide an environment which allows healing to take place. In other words, if you break your arm, you go to a doctor and he or she will set it so that it can heal properly. But God has designed the body to heal itself, right? Or if you come to a doctor with some kind of a bacterial infection, uh, he or she can give you some antibiotics which kill the infection and allow the body to begin to heal itself. Because God has designed into the human body the ability to heal itself. But it is God who heals, whether he does so supernaturally or by simply creating our bodies with the the ability to heal themselves of certain things, or even if we go to a doctor or a hospital and receive treatment, ultimately the healing that comes to our lives comes from God. Now, I do believe we have a part in good health. And you don't have to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, God said, look, don't eat like the Egyptians ate, okay? I mean, you know, I don't know what those folks were eating, but they were eating some bad stuff. And God says, look, you're my people, and I want you eating like they ate, okay? Because if you follow my dietary restrictions, I will protect you from the diseases that inflicted the Egyptians. So God tells us, look, we have a responsibility to eat good stuff. And if we do, the body then will have the ability to do what God's designed it to do. It's just to maintain health. 
But this morning, we're really looking at supernatural healings. That's really where I want to focus. We're looking at Jesus' ministry here. And there are many examples of how God healed people supernaturally all through the pages of Scripture. In the Old Testament, uh, we see especially in the, in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, how God used them many times to heal people supernaturally. In fact, one story comes to mind of a uh, Syrian general named Naaman, right? Naaman the Syrian. And uh, he was stricken with leprosy, which was incurable back then. And uh, he had a little uh, Jewish slave girl that he had picked up on one of his raids on Israel and brought her back to his house. And she was a sweet little thing. And she actually loved her, her master, Naaman, and uh, said to his wife one day, uh, she said, you know, it's too bad my master uh, doesn't go down to Israel to see the prophet Elisha because he can heal him. And so he, Naaman gets wind of it, the wife tells him. And so he goes down and eventually makes contact with Elisha. And, and uh, Elisha says, well, go out and dip seven times in the Jordan River and you'll be healed. And Naaman was incensed. In fact, he turns around and walk, tr- starts walking away. He said, we got cleaner rivers up in Damascus than that filthy Jordan. I'm not dipping myself in the Jordan River, Alan. As he starts walking away, one of his servants said to him, Master, I mean, if the, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, you know, I mean, climb the highest mountain, slay the seven-headed dragon, you would have done that, right? Why not this little thing? Eh, it's worth a try, I guess. So he dips himself seven times in the Jordan. He's healed. Now, that was no natural healing, right? That was a miracle. You don't dip yourself in water seven times and be healed of leprosy. So that was a supernatural thing. Well, why... Did God go through that whole thing? To humble Naaman. Okay? <laughs> to humble Naaman. So we see God heal many people in the Old Testament supernaturally. And of course, divine healing, healing was a major part of the ministry of Jesus, as we've been looking at in Matthew's uh, Gospel. In fact, it was one of the hallmarks of his ministry. And notice I said, one of the hallmarks of Jesus' ministry. That's very important, guys. Again, drawing your attention back to Matthew 8, verses 16 and 17 where it says, After evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. He healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Notice what Matthew said. Jesus healed all their sicknesses that it might be what? Fulfilled. Past tense. Fulfilled. Jesus Christ fulfilled the scripture about Messiah coming and healing the sick. Jesus had a unique ministry. We, just because Jesus healed everybody in that town, and we can't claim the right to do that. And I'll show you why in a moment. Jesus had a unique ministry as Messiah, one that was ordained by God to prove his Messiahship through the miracles he did. Again, remember what we quoted a couple weeks ago in John 14, verse 11, where Jesus said to his disciples, Look, believe that I'm the Messiah. Because of the words that I tell you, if not, believe them. Believe what I say for the sake of the works that I do. Because they testify to who I am. Miracles. And some people say, yeah, but Jesus gave us as his church the ability to perform miracles and healings, didn't he? Well, it is true. At one point, Jesus did give his disciples power to heal diseases, and then he sent them out, right, in Matthew 10. And we read in verses 7 and 8, as he said, As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. 
after his resurrection, before he ascended back to his father, as he commissioned us as his disciples to go into all the world and preach the good news, Mark records in his gospel in chapter 16 that the Lord said, and these signs or miracles will follow those who believe. And among other things, he says, they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So Jesus did give his church the right and the authority to go out there as they preach the gospel, to lay hands on people, casting out demons, healing the sick, and so on. As we move into the book of Acts, we see this become a reality, especially through the lives of Peter and Paul, I'm thinking, primarily. And I'm sure the other apostles worked miracles as well, but uh, the record in in, uh, Acts focuses in primarily on first Peter's ministry, then Paul. We know that Peter was used by God to heal a guy in Acts chapter 3 who had been lame from his mother's womb, right? It's a pretty spectacular miracle. Generated quite a crowd, and Peter was able to preach the first spirit-filled message, and a lot of folks got saved on that day. And then later on, when Paul got saved, and God empowered Paul as an apostle to go out, it said that Paul did many miracles. In fact, in Acts 19, we read, how that God worked many unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. So even his sweatbands or his aprons uh, would be put on the body of the sick and they would recover. I mean, Paul would work all day as a tent maker, have a sweatband down, you know, he'd take it off at the end of the day, throw it in the ground, pull his apron off, throw it in the ground, people would grab it, run and find a sick person, throw it on them and they get healed. Okay? Pretty amazing stuff. I believe God still heals today. I believe he's the same yesterday, today and forever, right? And if God worked miracles in the first century of healing and so on, why would he not want to do those things today? And in fact, we see that uh, in many third world countries, he is really working in a very dramatic and powerful way as he is healing the sick, raising the dead. You get missionary reports from all over the world in these third world countries uh, of God doing the miraculous and working healings. Now, let me just say this. There are many Christians who believe that divine healing is a promise God has given to, listen, all of his people. In fact, these folks believe it's the birthright of every child of God to be healed from all sicknesses. And here's why they think that. They claim that since sickness was a result of sin, which is true, we just talked about that. And since Jesus atoned for sin on the cross, therefore, When we apply his blood to our lives by faith, not only is the sin washed away, but along with it, the consequence of sin, which is sickness. should be all washed away. Sin, sickness, all by the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So much so that if any Christian does get sick today and does not get healed, they claim that it is a lack of faith on their part. Now, I have pointed out to these folks that death was also the result of sin. And if through the atonement, Jesus took our sins away, which he did, but you're saying he also took all sicknesses away because they were the result of sin, well, then shouldn't he have taken death away? Because that was also a consequence of sin? So much so that as Christians now, we should never really die. We should all remain alive until the rapture. Because let's face it, every time my body gets sick, I claim my birthright. As a child of God and God heals me, then my body will never wear out and die, so I should be alive. Christians should be alive to the time of the rapture. Now, they don't like that logic, okay, because I've talked to them about this. And they want to make the the healing a physical thing, but they want to spiritualize the death part. You can't do that. 
They were both the physical consequences of sin. And if the atonement washed away sin, which it did, the question is, well, did it then really wash away sickness and death? I'm going to show you in a minute. It didn't wash away all sickness. And death, we know, is a reality for all of us who are children of God. Listen, just because God said that he would use Christians as instruments on earth to continue the ministry of Jesus, which did include healing the sick, that doesn't mean that God has promised that all Christians would be healed of all their diseases or that his disciples could heal at will. And that really is the issue here. Do we have the sovereign right to heal anybody we want at will? Has God really given us that authority? Uh, no, I don't see that. In fact, in 1 John 5, 14 and 15, John says this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his what? His will. He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Look, we're the children of God. That's true. We have been given authority. We have been given God's power. But we are still his servants. We are not sovereign. We still act under the authority and control of our God, who is ultimately in control of all things. Therefore, I can't play God. I can be an instrument that God would use if he chooses to to heal somebody. That's true. And I, and I enjoy anything God wants to use me for. But I do not have the authority to act independently of his will. Everything has to pass through the grid of God's will. And if God says, yes, that is something I want to do, God, here am I, use me. But the idea that, well, you know what, we are followers of Jesus. We are his church. And he healed all sicknesses. That means we should be able to heal all sicknesses. Well, first of all, it says in Matthew 8, he did heal all sicknesses in Capernaum at that time, didn't he? But he did not heal all sicknesses everywhere that he went when he was still on the earth. He healed, listen, everybody his father wanted him to heal. That's true. He did not heal everybody, period. Well, what are you talking about? John 5. Jesus went into the area of the pool of Bethesda, right? And if you read John 5, you will see it says there were sick people everywhere. What did he do? Heal everybody? No, he walked up to one guy who was lame, healed him, and left. Why did he do that? Why didn't he empty the place out? Obviously, his father had not told him to heal everybody. It says to us that, you know what? Not even the Lord Jesus Christ acted in his own authority or according to his own will. He himself got his marching orders from the Father, even as we must do. And as Jesus didn't have the authority to heal anybody at will that he wanted, but only those the Father showed him to heal, the same is true in our ministries as well. And I've had people in the positive confession movement uh, who believe in... Um, and this idea that all Christians should be healed all the time have pointed me back to Psalm 103, which again says, Bless the Lord who heals all your diseases. And they say, Look, see that God heals all your diseases. I don't really believe that's what the psalmist was saying. I don't think the psalmist was saying every disease you get, God's going to heal all of them. I think he was saying of all the diseases that are healed, God's the one who heals you, as we've already pointed out. The question is, why don't we see more Christians now in America heal. Because you're saying God still heals. Yes, I believe God still heals. So then why don't we see more of it in America? Well, I think the big reason is our lack of faith. 
And we were going to read in Matthew 13 how that Jesus went up to Nazareth one day, where a town where he grew up, right? And he did not do many miracles among them because of their what? Unbelief. It implies to, in fact, he was on to say he healed a few small things, maybe a couple of headaches and whatever. But it implies to me the Lord Jesus wanted to do more in their midst, but their unbelief just choked out what he wanted to do. In fact, he even Jesus indicted them by saying, according to your faith, let it be done unto you. You know, we Christians in America are blessed with the finest doctors and medical care in the entire world. And that's a blessing, but it's also a two-edged sword. Because I think too many Christians in America depend more on doctors, medical technology, and medicines to be healed than on the Lord. And if modern medicine doesn't have the answer, then they tend to give up hope. When as you read the reports coming out of missionary organizations that have missionaries around the world in these third world countries where they don't have great doctors and hospitals and medicines and access to all the medical technology that we have. They have nothing but God himself and they pray with simple childlike faith for God to heal and he is healing incredibly. Yes, he still heals. And sometimes it is God's will that he use doctors and medicines to heal us. Look, Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, is called the Blessed Physician. I mean, there is a place for doctors and medicines. You remember how in the Old Testament, King Hezekiah got sick one day. There was some kind of a a boil, some kind of, I don't know, it was probably an eruption of something going on in his body that was very severe. He was very sick, and he asked Isaiah the prophet to go to the Lord and pray for him, that he would be healed. And here's what God said. Isaiah, make a poultice from figs, do this and that, and then put the poultice on the boil. And when Isaiah did that, Hezekiah was healed. Why did God do that? Why didn't God just speak the word and heal him? Because God wanted to tell us, sometimes I will choose to use doctors and medicines. Don't close that door. I mean, don't close that door. I mean, I don't just heal supernaturally. I've given you doctors and medicines, and you know, you're to avail yourself to those things. But they are never to come first, guys. They are never to come first. You go to God first for your healing all the time. Because we need to balance this out with what happened to King Asa one day. He got very sick. In fact, we read in Second Chronicles 16, verses 12 and 13. In the 39th year of the reign of King Asa, he became diseased in his feet, and his malady was severe. Yet in his disease, listen, he did not seek the Lord, but physicians only. Isn't that interesting? Next verse, Asa died. Now listen, if you're a doctor here, I'm not laying any trip on you. God bless you. But God wants his people to put him first. God wants us to go to him first. And if we choose to go to a man or a woman first, then God says, look, you're on your own now. Like he said to Israel, you want to go down to Egypt? To get horses and chariots to help win your battles against your enemies? Fine, go ahead. I'm the Lord your God. I'll, I would give you victory if you just come to me. You want to turn to man for help and not me? You're on your own. So God is always our first line of defense. God is always the one we approach first. Now, you remember how, then we'll bring it so close, how that Timothy, young Timothy, had some uh, stomach issues. Now, we don't know what it was, but he had stomach problems that plagued him. And... Um, We're not told in Scripture, but I'm convinced, of course, that Paul the Apostle, because Timothy was very close to Paul, that Paul prayed for Timothy numerous times to be healed. When it became apparent that God was not going to heal Timothy supernaturally, 
then Paul directed Timothy to, uh, Paul suggested a medicinal remedy. And we read these words where Paul said to Timothy, take a little wine for your frequent stomach problems. So Paul went to God first. God did not heal Timothy supernaturally. So Paul says, okay, plan B, Timothy, take a little wine. Because in those days, uh, bacteria would get into their stomachs because, you know, there was no uh, pasteurization, the milk and so on and different other things. So the wine had uh, alcohol, which would often kill the bacteria. And uh, so in small amounts, it was used medicinally. But here's the order. God first and then doctors and medicine second. But this idea that we should always be healed of everything. The Bible teaches this. Well, first of all, if, if Paul would have believed that, I mean, he wouldn't have said in 2 Timothy 4, verse 20, I left Trophimus and Miletus sick. Paul would have said, Trophimus, what's wrong? Claim your birthright, son. You know, you're bringing down my ministry here. I can't be seen with a sick guy. He's going to torpedo all my work, my ministry. You've got to get healthy, man. I'm sure Paul prayed for Trophimus. God didn't heal him. So Paul said, I've got to leave. but told the church, take care of him. Get him a good doctor. Get him medicine. Do what you can. Right? Hey, Paul the Apostle himself, the one who healed many people, couldn't even heal himself. I mean, he had some kind of an infirmity. We don't know what it was. Some think it was an eye problem. Uh, it might have been something else. We read in 2 Corinthians 12 how that Paul prayed three times to the Lord to take it from him. And God did not do that. God didn't heal Paul. Which begs the question, why are some healed and others are not healed? Folks, I don't know all the ways of God or all the whys of God. I mean, there's a lot of things about the Lord, again, we're not going to understand in this life. And the Bible says the secret things belong to who? Belong to God. Now, there are sometimes reasons why God may not heal you. Paul said, when I prayed three times and asked the Lord to heal me, and he didn't, here's what he told me. Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in what? Weakness. And Paul said, therefore, I would rather glory in my weaknesses and infirmities, that the power of God might be manifest through my life. Hey, sometimes God doesn't heal us because by not healing us, We are brought to a place of weakness that causes us to pray more and depend on God more, which is where the power really comes, right? But I'm just bringing this to a close. Let me just say this. This is a tremendous area of condemnation the devil uses against people. And I want you to understand that a person's lack of being healed by God often has nothing to do with a lack of spirituality or godliness on their part. I have seen some of the most godly people die of cancer young, and some of the most wicked people live long lives and die of natural causes. Why is that? I don't know. I'm not God. God is sovereign. But just know this. Don't let the devil condemn you because you're not being healed. Because the devil is the master of condemnation. And here you are trying to live for the Lord. And you get sick and you're praying and God is not healing you. What's the devil telling you? Your life is not right with God in some way. You got sin somewhere. Didn't Job's friend say that to him? When he maintained his innocence, righteousness, and his friend said, Job, don't tell us you're a righteous man. If you are righteous, if you're right with God, you wouldn't be sick. If you're right with God, you wouldn't be poor. Oh, wow. Do we hear that today anywhere? Yeah. You know, I feel for people. And I've, I've had people come to this church over the years who have been involved in these Word of Faith churches. And they have confirmed to me the very thing I was fearing. And it's this. 
They have told me that, look, when a person in one of those churches gets sick initially, the whole church rallies around them, casting out the demon of sickness and just claiming their, their healing because it's their birthright and so on. And, but when they don't get healed, then the whole church begins to pull away. Man, I'm just sitting in your life, brother. You know, I can't be seen with a sinner. You're not going to, you know, get your life right with God, man. I can't be seen with you anymore. And when, the, when a person needs the body of Christ the most, now they begin to pull away. And how sad is that, right? You talk about condemnation and feelings of being alone. I know these folks would say, yeah, but if they had enough faith, they would be healed. Well, you know, as I turn to Hebrews 11, which is called the Great Hall of Faith chapter, which chronicles some of the greatest examples of faith throughout the history of God's people. Read that chapter again. See how many of God's people, these are great men and women of faith, were sick, infirmed, and were poor. And besides that faith healer, let me ask you, if that person doesn't have the faith to be healed, why don't you provide your faith? You're such a man of faith. Because there's several examples in the New Testament where somebody didn't even know who Jesus was. And yet, God used an apostle or somebody else to have the faith for them to be healed. See, they don't like that because then their theology is in the line. They're forced to live out the implications of what they go around teaching everybody else. Look, I have seen people with great faith not be healed. And some people with no faith, God has healed. So what do we do if we get sick? Well, we pray. And we pray in faith that God would heal us. We get other Christians to pray for us that God would heal us. We even come to the elders of the church. And I ask you guys after service today, if you have a sickness or any infirmity, come up here as I did after first service, and we'll anoint you with oil and pray over you. Because the Bible says, you know, if you're sick, call for the elders of the church, and they'll anoint you with oil and pray over you, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. And they'll be raised up. So we call for the elders of the church. They notice with oil. But look it. What if God in his sovereignty chooses not to heal us, or at least not right now? What do we do? We still trust that he's a good God. We still trust that he loves us. We still trust that he has a plan for our lives and he knows the thoughts that he is thinking toward us. And they're not thoughts of evil. They're thoughts of peace to give us a future and a hope. And Job took this one step farther and said, you know what, even if God allows me to die, I'm going to still trust him. Because my faith in God isn't built or based on what he does for me. It's based on who he is. And because he's such a big God and I don't know all the ways of God or the whys of God, I just trust him. I trust his character. And if God says, I'm not going to heal you because it's your time to come to glory, Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready. But I'm still going to trust him. I'm going to trust in his character. Don't let Satan tell you that God is not healing you because he doesn't love you. You know, I think of Lazarus in John 11, how Lazarus got very sick. You remember the story, how they sent Mary and Martha servants to Jesus to come quickly? Because Jesus was very close to this family. It was two sisters and a brother, Martha, uh, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. So Mary and Martha sent, quickly sent service to Jesus and said, Lord, come quickly because the person that you love, and I'm glad the Holy Spirit put that in there. Because if he didn't put that in there, we read the story, because Jesus didn't go with them right away, did he? He purposely waited a couple of days, then made the two-day journey to Bethany. By this time, Lazarus had died and was in the grave four days. Now, if you had read that and you didn't hear what the Holy Spirit said, and, and Jesus loved Lazarus, you might say, I didn't really care about this guy too much, did he? Because, <laughs> I mean, come on, can you, you love somebody, you want to rush over there and help him. But Jesus purposely waited because he had a greater miracle he wanted to perform. He wanted to raise Lazarus from the dead. You know, I say to people that, you know, look, the Lord loved Lazarus and he didn't heal Lazarus. And they say, oh, yeah, but he did heal him. I said, what do you mean? Well, he resurrected him. He died and he resurrected him. Well, that wasn't a healing, that was a resurrection, though. 
Which does bring up an important point. I'll close with this. When the Bible says God heals us of all our diseases, you know that's literally true? Because God will let his people die. And at the rapture, he will resurrect us, give us a new glorified body that will never get sick and die again. So ultimately, we are all healed, aren't we? Psalm 103, God does heal us of all our diseases. Ultimately, doesn't he? But there's a lot of people that don't want to hear that, okay? They don't want to hear that God's going to heal us in glory. They're fixated on time. And they believe that, no, 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 the Bible teaches that every one of us gets healed now. It doesn't teach that. And Scripture doesn't, doesn't confirm that. We had a woman in the church years ago. I'm not talking years ago. And she had come from a very charismatic, word of faith uh, background. And she had had twin boys. Now, they were older at this time. They were in like, their, like 25. But she had had twin boys. And these two little guys, when they were born, were very sick. I forgot what they had, but, but they were very uh, ill uh, physically. I mean, um, you know, they had something very severe going on. And, and she was a good mom. She had to dote on these two boys. I mean, she had to give them uh, special breathing treatments every day and different things. And she had to really watch over them and, and, and to keep them from dying. And she did. She was a great mom. And all the while, she believed that God was going to heal her boys. And as they got a little older now, and they're in their 20s, uh, she claimed God gave her a vision. And in this vision, she saw her two boys standing upright, because they couldn't even stand up their own wheelchairs. Standing upright, both wearing tuxedos, at a wedding. And she believed God was saying to her that they were going to be healed in time for their sister's wedding, which was coming up. Well, the wedding came and went. The boys were not healed. And so she was sharing with my wife one day about this. And Cindy just believed she had a word from the Lord, which she shared with this woman and said, Look, have you ever thought that maybe what God was showing you is that in heaven, your boys are going to be healed and those tuxedos were going to be what they wear at the, at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Because they were both saved. Well, she got very upset with that. She did not want to hear that. In fact, she wound up leaving our church because of it. Because she believed that we were not a church that was going to encourage her in her faith. We were bringing her down. She needed to be around like-minded people. Well, she went home to be with the Lord about 10 or 12 years ago. And her boys, from what I understand, have not been healed since. And look, folks, we're not trying to bring anyone down. We're not trying to step on your faith. I believe if you're sick or somebody you love is sick, you pray with all your heart, you trust God for a healing, God does heal. But let's not make ourselves into God. Let's be subservient to our Lord in the sense that, look, God, I trust you, and Lord, I know you heal, and I'm going to trust you to heal my kids or my this or my friend or whoever it might be. But if you choose not to heal, Lord, I'm not going to turn away from you. I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to trust you. I'm still going to serve you. Because you're God, and I'm not. And that's what we have to take with us, guys. All right? I believe God heals. But I think the biggest lesson here is not how we can get from God all the things we want. It's to trust God for who he is. And that's why in the book of Job, when Job was asking why, 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 all the way through the book, why is this happening? Why did God do this? Why did God allow that? When God finally appears to Job, you know God never answered Job's whys. You know why? Because there's always going to be another why. And if your faith is built on answered whys, your faith is never going to be what God wants it to be. And so all God did was point Job back to himself. 
to God's power, to God's wisdom. And after that, Job said, I, I'm going to shut my mouth now. Because God, I realize you're so much bigger than me. I'm never going to understand all your ways. And I'm certainly not going to understand all the whys of life. But you know what? I don't have to now because I, I know you. And I trust in your character. And if you take that lesson with you from this story, your Christian faith and walk is going to be multiplied many times over. Because now it's not built on circumstances. It's built on the person of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for teaching us things that we need to know desperately. And now we ask for grace to walk in them implicitly, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to not always try to figure out all the whys and ways of God, but to simply focus on the character of our God, that you are a good, loving, kind God. And although we don't always know why you allow certain things, we know it's not to purposely hurt us for the sake of hurting us. You have a plan. And we're going to trust you to um, guide our lives in the right paths or we're going to turn against you because you didn't do what we wanted and rail against you, toss our faith out the window. God, give us grace not to do that. Give us grace to trust you no matter what. That we might say like Job, even though you don't heal me, and you allow me to die, I'm going to still trust you, Lord. Because I know you. I know who you are. You're good. Father, give us grace to walk in that total faith in your character. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.